You are listening to a sermon from In-Town Presbyterian Church in Portland, Oregon. If you'd like to listen to other sermons or find out more about the ministries and work of In-Town, please visit InTownChurch.com. The question of exclusivity or pluralism is one that is very relevant in our culture, especially after the days of 9-11. It's a question that many of us wrestle with, and you hear wrestled with in the media. The events of 9-11 have revealed some very severe cultural fissures as it regards religion. If you were like me, I was sort of glued to the television after 9-11, watching the news. It was all the same thing, but it was different perspectives, different people telling different stories about what happened and their perspective on things. And I was really surprised uh, in, the, in the immediate days afterwards hearing words from secular commentators, words like evil, words like wrong, words like extremist. These are all very exclusive terms. These are ways that these people are judging those that flew those planes into the buildings. Those people that said, I know the pathway to God, and it's led me to take hold of this airline and crash it into a building. And even secular people were willing to say, no, that's evil. Those people don't have the pathway to God. Now, others of us are reaching the conclusion, however, that this is the very thing that we should expect from religious exclusivists, from those who believe they have the only pathway to God, that that's inevitable that that's going to happen, that they're going to attempt to colonize their views on other people. Anyone who believes that their way is the only valid way is by definition going to attempt to colonize their views. But are any of us really true pluralists? Are we really ready to say that the people that flew planes into the buildings on 9-11 are on the same path as you and I are on, or another world religion is on? Are we really ready to extend that pluralistic doctrine to the Branch Davidians, to those who picket military funerals because we harbor homosexuals in this country? Are these people all on the same path? Are we all going in the same direction? Do these people, these religious people, are they on the same path or a different path to the same God as Martin Luther King or Gandhi? Are we really ready to extend our pluralistic views that far? If we're honest, all of us have people that we would like to see outside the scope of pluralism. We all want our understanding of spirituality and religion to be ascendant. And in the intervening years since 9-11, we've seen sort of a deterioration of the consensus that all paths lead to God, that they're just different ways of getting up the mountain. We've seen a proliferation of books uh, from the atheist perspective that have been on the bestseller list since 9-11. I'm not sure how connected that event was to this, but you've seen Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett and others, Christopher Hitchens, selling books by the millions that are saying, look, religious views are not benign. They're evil. They should be put down and kept out of the public square. They're not saying that all religions lead to the same place. They're saying, no, you need to agree with me. There is no God. And those who are religious are on the wrong pathway. You see, very exclusivistic. And religious people are stepping back and saying, well, wait a minute. 
Don't marginalize my views. Don't belittle me. This is, we're not like everyone else. There's distinctives to my religion, to my faith, to the way that I approach life. Stephen Prothero is a professor at Boston University, and by his own admission, he's a professor of religion, but he is not uh, a religious person. He, is not, um, he doesn't follow the Christian God. And he's written a book called God is Not One, Eight Rival Religions and Why Their Differences Matter. And if you have a chance, watch him on Stephen Colbert. It's actually quite a a funny interaction with Stephen playing his part of the devoted Catholic and trying to pin Stephen Prothero down. But in the introduction, Stephen Prothero says, at least since the first petals of the counterculture bloomed across Europe and the United States in the 1960s, it has been fashionable to affirm that all religions are beautiful and all are true. This is a lovely sentiment, but it is dangerous, disrespectful, and untrue. This claim, which reaches back to William James' poem, All Religions Are One, from 1795, is as odd as it is intriguing. No one argues that different economic systems or political regimes are one and the same. Capitalism and socialism are so self-evidently at odds that their differences hardly bear mentioning. The same goes for democracy and monarchy. Yet scholars continue to claim that religious rivals such as Hinduism and Islam, Judaism and Christianity, are by some miracle of the imagination both essentially the same and basically good. This is from a secular scholar of religion. That consensus is fading, that all religions are the same. Secular people are coming to the conclusion that no, they're not. And religious people within different faiths are finally willing to step up and say, no, it's not. There is some commonality, but there's great, great differences. Now, this is a problem, not just an intellectual problem. Because if you are a Christian and you do claim to know the way, you live in Portland and you have friends that would say, no, 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 that's not the way at all. There's many ways. Or I have the right way. There's... Many of us have loved ones that are on very different paths than we are on. And so this question is very relevant because how do we deal with those issues? How do we say that this path is right and yet continue to extend love and grace to those who disagree with us? And we must be honest that throughout history, claims of religious exclusivity have been a barrier between peoples and people groups. And claims of religious certainty have often created division in cultures and nations and have been a, uh, created a posture of superiority in those who believe that they have the one true religion. Now, this is what John is dealing with in this passage. And he's wrestling with the fact that there is a truth, capital T, that he is writing something that he believes to be the one truth. But he's writing to a group that lives in much the same uh, cultural milieu that we do in Portland. There's hundreds of competing views. Now, we're going to look at this passage just briefly from three perspectives. John says, first of all, to test the spirits. Then he says to distinguish the spirits. And then he says, talks about the distinctive spirit of Christianity. First of all, test the spirits in verse 1. Test the spirits. He's talking about religious teachers who each in their own way are claiming to dispense the truth, capital T. 
In his day, as in ours, there wasn't one monolithic religious experience. There were competing visions of what it meant to know God and what path was right to get to him. And you've got numerous teachers and sects and factions that are created around this idea that we have the truth. And John is writing a church in that context and telling them, here's how you know. Here's how to live in that context. Now, he calls them spirits because what he is saying is that religious views are not benign. Behind all of these views, behind what each of these factions believes are real spiritual commitments that don't mirror one another. G.K. Chesterton, who was a a philosopher and a a Christian in the last century, says "When when a man stops believing in God, he doesn't then believe in nothing. He believes anything. When someone stops believing in the Christian God, according to Chesterton, he doesn't stop believing and he doesn't believe then in nothing, he believes in anything. In other words, it's not just the adherents of traditional religions who are worshipers who make claims about ultimate reality, that we all do this, from the avid secularist to the new age guru. We all have visions of reality. We all have understandings about what is true and what is behind the physical. We all live our lives believing something to be good. We all have a vision of how the good life is approached. And we all have opinions, whether we like it or not, whether we admit to it or not. We all have opinions that we would like to imperialize. Ralph Waldo Emerson has the same idea. A person will worship something, have no doubt about that. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. You see, Emerson, like the Bible, is saying that we are all built to worship something. John is saying Christianity has a specific and particular and unique set of beliefs about the physical and spiritual world with a unique answer about what's wrong with the world and how it's mended. He says, test the spirits. How do you do that? He says, well, are they calling you to a life that's consonant with the good news, with the call of Jesus? Are they calling you to a life of love? Not all religious choices are equal and valid. Not all religious choices are equally good. Certainly we can see that in the events of 9-11. Certainly even the most avid pluralist would admit that not all paths are equally good. And John asks, if you affix your heart to what these spirits are saying, what will it lead to? What will it lead to? Test the spirits. And he says, one way that you will know if it is real, if it's valid, if it's from God, is if it calls you away from hatred and indifference and into love. That's how you know. Everyone who loves, John says, has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Are these teachers teaching something that's consonant with that? Test the spirits. Is it leading to a life of love? Is it reflecting the good news, the hope of the gospel, that God is so loving that he sends his only son, he sends his greatest gift into the world? Is that what these teachers around you are teaching? 
That's how John says you are to know. You're to test the spirits, test the teachers, test these factions. Are they leading you to a life of love or a life of indifference and ambivalence or even hatred of other people? Test the spirits. And then in verse 5, he gives us the authority to distinguish the spirits. He says, they are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world. And the world listens to them. The they here are opponents of Christianity. And John says, make no mistake, there is a difference among these spirits. They are not the same. Some will offer you a spiritual message that will lead you to futility, that will lead you away from God in the exact opposite direction. The true spirits, the true teachers will lead you toward him. Now maybe you're thinking, how arrogant How narrow-minded to say to your followers, you know the right way. Judge those around you by the direction of their life. Where does their belief system lead? How arrogant, how narrow-minded for anyone, Christian or not, to say, I know the way. Maybe you've heard the famous Indian parable or tale about the king that invites blind men into his courtroom. And he asks each of them to describe by feeling what what it is. Is it an animal? Is it a snake? Is it an elephant? What what do they feel? And they come up with different versions of what it is. Now, the king is intending not only to amuse those in his court, but he's also saying, he's also teaching that the diverse religions of the world are but the groping of blind men. But the groping of blind men. And they're after a truth that is far too great for any human mind to grasp. And this story basically explains, extrapolates for us the philosophy of the Vendata, the, the end of Hinduism. The whole point is that, of the story is that the blind men represent the world religions. But the king, the king is not blind. He sees He's been given this vision. He's attained to a realization, and therefore he knows what? The truth. Now, we have heard this most likely used in exactly the opposite way to explain that, oh, yeah, because religions have a piece of the truth, but they're not in conflict. One religion touches the trunk and says it's a trunk. One religion touches the the leg or the tail. It's all the same animal, right? But... Each person has only part of the truth. We've heard this parable to basically defend pluralism. But the way it was written was exactly the opposite. The king is the one who sees. The king is the one who is the authority. The king is the one who has the truth. And all of the blind men can't argue with them because they don't know what he knows. You see, in its Indian uh, context, it's used to defend one way, one ultimate view of reality, that of the king. Or told another way, maybe you've heard it from this perspective, that there's a huge mountain, right? And there's dozens, if not hundreds of pathways up the mountain. But when you're on one path, you can't see the other paths. So all of these hikers are going up the mountain, and then they converge at the top. They all think, well, I'm on the path that leads to the top, and I I don't know of any other path that could get there. But then they get to the top of the mountain, and they converge on all these other hikers who, lo and behold, they knew the way too. Now... The only way that that can be an argument for pluralism is if you are the one who sees, 
if you can see the whole mountain. You see, it's a very authoritarian way to look at the world because you're claiming knowledge that you don't give, uh, or you're claiming a perspective that you don't allow world religions to have. You're claiming a very ascendant, very authoritarian view of the world. You're saying, I know the truth. You see, it's not a humble position at all. It's actually a very prideful one. It's very assertive that I know the true way. And all of these other people are the ignorant ones because they follow this way thinking that they have the own way. They're looking down at all of us ignorant souls on the path. You see, the only way that you can assert that world religions see part of the truth is if you see all of the truth. You claim for yourself what you deny to everyone else. You're speaking in a way that you forbid others to speak. Again, Chesterton, every day one comes across somebody who says that, of course, his view may not be the right one, but of course his view must be the right one or it's not his view. Everyone thinks their view of reality is true and better than the other views. Even the pluralist believes that. My view is better because I know the truth. Everyone thinks their view of reality is better. That's why we vote a certain way. That's why we support different causes. That's why we get angry at people close to us because they step on our vision of how to achieve happiness because we see them as inhibiting us accomplishing what we want to accomplish. Of course we have opinions. Now what is so distinctive about Christianity is that though it does make claims to know and to disseminate ultimate reality, it does so in a way that's radically humbling. It's radically humbling to those who see that this is the ultimate reality. Now, let me tell you how that happens. We've talked about the test, testing of the spirits, distinguishing of the spirits, and now the distinctive spirit of Christianity. If Christianity is going to say, yes, like other religions, we claim to have the truth, what is it that sets Christianity apart from other religions or from non-religion. Verse 2, God has come in the flesh. God has come in the flesh. Other religions, the, the leader was human only. And in fact, it would be an insult to that leader to, to appoint them to a place of divinity. In other religions, the leader is human only. Christianity alone claims that God has come into the world as a human. In other religions, you hear about escaping from the flesh because it's bad. But in Christianity, God takes on human flesh, not to abolish your personhood, but to bring you more fully into the person that God has created you to be. In other religions, other viewpoints, they are often hostile or at best ambivalent towards the, the world and those outside of their faith. But Christianity says God loves the world. That's why justice matters. That's why the environment matters. That's why your job matters, because God loves the world. Jesus came to redeem the world and to fix what is broken, to put an end to death, to put an end to poverty, to put an end to injustice, loneliness, and hatred. 
the distinctive spirit, the distinctive nature of Christianity is that he doesn't just stand far off and command his followers. He comes and becomes one of them. He becomes a human. He takes on the burdens and the brokenness and the pain and the heartache of the world in order to fix it, to redeem it. The Christian's calling is not to escape, but to seek the peace and the prosperity of the world, mirroring what Jesus did. He takes on flesh, and this is what is utterly unique. He takes on flesh to bring grace. Verse 10, this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Utterly unique. Even though you have rejected me, I have come to give you grace. I have come to take on your sin on my shoulders and to pay for it. Above everything else, this is what distinguishes Christianity. It is grace. The way to me is not to be good, to keep the rules, to be a moral person, try harder in order to be loved. No, no, no. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. You see, friends, if you believe that you're saved by your performance, if, you're believe, if you believe you're saved because you figured it out, because you were smarter than everyone else, because of your class, because of your knowledge, because of your intelligence, because of your performance, you'll see yourself as superior to other people. But in the gospel, the only, it's the only belief posture that assures you that you are not better than anyone else. If the gospel is your exclusive truth, you must admit you're a sinner and you need grace. Only the gospel humbles you before the stark reality that you didn't figure it out, you weren't smart enough, you weren't good and holy enough, but Jesus stepped into your world and gave you grace. The only thing that made you fit for Jesus was your need for him. Yes, there's exclusivity, yes, There is a claim of truth with a capital T, but it's a truth that is radically humbling, much more humbling than the pluralist view. God doesn't love you because of you, but because of who he is. Leslie Newbigin, who I quoted last week, wrote a book back in the the 70s, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society, and he had done ministry in India for 30 years or so, and had come back to a West, come back to Europe, that was a very different situation than what he had left. He had left Christendom, basically. And in the intervening years, the West had become uh, very secular, very much pluralist. And so he writes this book to explain how does the gospel translate into this context, into these communities? How can we talk about the gospel in a way that makes sense in a pluralistic society? And he says this, There is a longing for unity among all human beings, for unity offers the promise of peace. The problem is that we want unity on our own terms, and it is our rival programs for unity which tear us apart. As St. Augustine said, all wars are fought for the sake of peace. The history of the world could be told as the story of successive efforts to bring unity to the world and the and. Of course, the name we give to these efforts is imperialism. The Christian gospel 
has sometimes been made the tool for imperialism, and of that we have to repent. But at its heart, it is the denial of all imperialisms, for at its center there is a cross where all imperialisms are humbled, and we are invited to find the center of human unity in the one who was made nothing so that all might be one. The very heart of the biblical vision for the unity of humankind is that at its center is not an imperial power, but a slain lamb. We all want justice in our own way. We all have bad people in mind. We have bad circumstances that we want justice for. We want justice to be done in our own lives and in the world. Almost everyone here wants justice in some way, but we also want love. We want forgiveness. We want grace. Why? Because we're made in God's image, the one who is absolutely just and absolutely loving. And it is only in the Christian gospel where those two concepts have been merged, can be intertwined, can be perfectly aligned. Absolute justice and absolute love, absolute grace. It's only resolved in Christ's coming. His sinless life, as Leslie Newbigin said, the slain lamb, that he was slain for sin. Justice has been done, but he is slain because God loves you so much. Friends, our call this morning is to do business with Jesus. If you're a Christian this morning, the question is, does your faith make you radically humble? Do you see yourself as submissive to other people because you see how sinful you were and that it took the death of God's only son to spare you, that justice was done, but he extended you ultimate love? Your sins are paid for. They're done away with. And God loves you purely, intensely, in an unlimited way. It should be radically humbling. There's no room for pride in the church. If you're not a Christian, you can do business with Jesus as well. You may be here and you're willing to reject him, and that's fine if that's what you're here for. Reject him, but don't patronize him as being just like everyone else, just the same. Jesus didn't come to die for an alternative path. He didn't come to die just to be one among many religious leaders and many valid ways to get to God. He says, whether you like it or not, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to me but through, comes to the Father but through me. That's what Jesus said, and that's what he was willing to die for. So if you want to reject him, reject him on his terms. Don't patronize him and say he's just like everyone else. He died so that you wouldn't miss the path. So let's all take hold of Jesus this morning. Let's pray. Father, this is a difficult thing to wrestle with, and we need your help. On one hand, we want to say that this is true, but on the other hand, we have loved ones, relatives, friends, and co-workers for which this story has not yet taken hold in their lives, and we wonder when it will, if it will, And Father, we pray that you would let us be radically humble 
ambassadors for you? Would we carry your message into the dark places of the world, knowing that our hearts were once dark until you shined your light upon them? Lord, let us carry the light of Jesus, the aroma of Jesus into other places. Let that be our mission. Father, let us be humble and winsome because we see what it took to save us. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.